This is Outside In, a show about the natural world and how we use it. I'm Sam Evans-Brown. Today, we are giving you an insider's look at what it takes to make the podcast. Now, there are a bunch of us that make the show, which means occasionally we have ideas meetings, and those meetings almost inevitably decompose into total chaos when one of us starts shouting our favorite facts about our favorite animal. So we gave up. Rather than fight it, we're leaning in today for cases for animals that are the best, the coolest, the niftiest, or however you want to define it. When it's all said and done, we're going to ask you to settle this one for us. So producers Taylor Quimby, Hannah McCarthy, Justine Paradise, and Jimmy Gutierrez have each brought an entry, and they're here to wow us with facts. First up, Hannah McCarthy. Sam, I'm going to start with the Epic of Gilgamesh. Have you ever read it? (laughs) I have not. He... Uh, Babylonian or something? Sumerian. Like, Sumerian. The Sumerian language, I believe it's the Sumerian language, but the ancient Mesopotamians, that was the culture, considered uh, one of the oldest, if not the oldest, surviving great works of literature. There are many stories in the Epic of Gilgamesh. However, I'm just going to share with you one. Okay. Gilgamesh is sad. I'm paraphrasing from the ancient Sumerians, so just bear with me. Gilgamesh is bummed out, his friend dies, and then Gilgamesh starts to think, you know, I'm obsessing over mortality too now. So Gilgamesh decides to go looking for immortality. He hears tell that there is a plant at the bottom of the ocean, this prickly plant with these thorns, that if you possess it, will give you youth. You will revert back to youth. Mm. So Gilgamesh straps some rocks to his feet. He walks along the bottom of the ocean. He finds the plant. He decides he needs to take a bath after being in the ocean, and a snake steals his plant. Ah, snakes. Always snakes. That's the way it always goes. (laughs) So, of course, this was millennia ago, and that plant is long gone. But what if I told you that immortality does indeed exist at the bottom of the ocean? Oh, man. Sam, it's called Turritopsis dorni. It grows no bigger than the pinky nail finger of a small-handed person such as myself. It is thought to exist in every ocean in the world, and it does not die. (sighs) The most amazing animal in the world, Sam, is otherwise known as the immortal jellyfish. And that's what it's called, the immortal jellyfish? The immortal jellyfish. Okay. So I'm going to call this little guy Turritopsis because that is what the scientist who I spoke with referred to he or she or they as. Now, there aren't many scientists who know this particular jellyfish well. Maria Pia Miglietta is one of them. She pronounces her name much better than I do. (laughs) Maria Pia Miglietta. Very pretty. So Dr. Miglietta explained to me that your average jellyfish reproduces by releasing sperm and eggs into the ocean. They form a larva. That larva floats to the bottom of the ocean, attaches itself to something, grows into polyps. Those polyps bud, and a bunch of little jellies float off and grow large, and the whole thing starts over again. Now, Turritopsis does this as well. However, it has something else up its sleeve. If it tries to kill the medusa, it basically reverts back to the polyps. Now, it's a little hard to hear her there, but what she's saying is that if you try to kill the Medusa, which is the jelly, it reverts back to the polyp stage. So this is like this is like if you kill an adult and they just turn back into a baby. Exactly. So killing means any number of things. Cutting it or starving it or changing salinity or temperature, adding chemicals the water. So you can cut this thing in half. You can make the environment unsustainable for this little guy. You can also just let it get old. Instead of dying like a regular jellyfish would do, 
it forms a little ball of cells. So she's saying instead of dying like a normal jellyfish, it forms a little ball of cells. One scientist refers to this as the meatball. <laughs> so <laughs> this little ball of cells floats to the ocean floor just like a larva. However, the important thing is that this is not a larva. It is physically different from that. And as far as we know, this is the only jellyfish in the jellyfish universe who can do this. After a few days as a meatball, this ball of cells attaches itself to the ocean floor like a larva, grows into a polyp, and buds little baby teratopsis, teratopsi. <laughs> uh, and when the conditions are right, Sam, it can make hundreds of new jellies. And here is the kicker. They're genetically identical to the original Medusa. They are genetically identical to the original Medusa. It clones itself. It clones itself, exactly. <sighs> which is different than reproducing, right? Does it remember? Well, I cannot say whether or not these little baby Teratopsis, Teratopsis dorni, have the same personality as the <laughs> other jellyfish, but this is basically the equivalent of Benjamin Button surviving reverse aging being born again, but then as like a triplet or maybe a centuplet. And then let's imagine that hundreds of little baby Benjamin Buttons decide that they want to travel. I started collecting Teratopsis from all over the world, from Japan to Panama to the Mediterranean Sea. Dr. Miglietta travels all over and she's seeing Teratopsis everywhere. They're being scooped up with ballast water from ships in one port, gets dumped in another port. And you might recall, Sam, that you yourself described a nightmare scenario in our vulture episode about invasive species who are particularly successful, where the skies are darkened by vultures and the seas are globbed up by jellyfish. And Dr. Miglietta has described the Teratopsis journey as a worldwide silent invasion. <gasps> so they're everywhere. They're all around us. We don't even see them. And they are replacing endemic species of jellyfish all over the world. But Sam, <laughs> rather than have you fear this terrible miracle, I'm going to have you know that the few scientists who do study this magical beast believe that it has amazing implications in terms of transdifferentiation of cells for humans. We can learn a lot about the human aging process after we spend more time studying this animal that manages to take its cells and turn them into other cells. One such scientist is named Shin Kubota. I tried very hard to connect with him. We only connected via email. However, I do have a gift for you from Shin. Shin spreads the word about the immortal jellyfish and his favorite method for doing so is through karaoke. <laughs> I give to you, Sam, the Immortal Jellyfish Festival song. I'll read the lyrics to you. <laughs> My name is T. Dorney. <laughs> I'm going to turn myself back into a polyp soon. <laughs> I'm thinking about what I want this time around. I can age in reverse. <laughs> right now, in one, two, three. I can live my life over again. But since people only live once, Sam, please live without any regrets. Oh, yeah. T. Dorney. <laughs> Okay, he goes on for quite a while. He's written nine different songs about the tea dorney. Oh my god. That concludes my presentation. I concede the floor.
So that was Hannah McCarthy. Up next is Taylor Quimby. Going the immortal route, Hannah. Yeah, the mm. godfish. Sorry. All right, all right, all right. So I, I have the true best animal of the group, and there are three reasons that I'm going to win this contest. They are, one, pound for pound, my animal is a Guinness Book of World Record-level weird and frightening creature. Two, it's been the subject of great scientific debate and is therefore fun to argue about at cocktail parties. And three, because I'm going to end with a random baby factoid and a compelling mystery. I see you've got your like shark tank pitch here. All right, so I'm starting with point number one. My animal is an insanely, insanely frightening predator. So this thing can burst in at 100 miles per hour, drop out of the sky, be on the ground in a couple of seconds, eat you, and then be back in the sky in a half a second before your friends or family have a chance to do anything about it. Wait, eat me? Yes. So this is expert number one for me, Michael Habib, paleontologist, professor, research associate at the Dinosaur Institute at the Los Angeles County Museum of Natural History. And by the way, nobody ever said we have to pick a living animal, so this is not cheating. It's a dinosaur. <laughs> it, is, it is actually not a dinosaur, though it did live during the age of the dinosaurs. You've gotten the opposite route of Hannah, who went the, the immortal route. You went the dead forever route. Yes, yes. Um, so Michael has spent a lot of time studying a subgroup of flying reptiles that lived during the age of the dinosaurs. They thrived in the late Cretaceous, and they are a subgroup of super giant pterosaurs. Uh, they are collectively called Ashdarkids, uh, which is from the Uzbek word. It means dragon. So these are your dragon pterosaurs. I would like to refer to them as, as uh, giant flying murderheads. So the biggest of these flying murderheads is my animal, the apex predator, Quetzalcoatlus. Also god names. Yes, exactly. The, uh, it's a, it derives from the Aztec like feathery serpent god. Um, now this thing, uh, like I said, doesn't look like you'd expect from the Jurassic Park movies. It has an enormous nine-foot-long skull that is three times the size of its own torso. Its neck is as long as about a giraffe's. Um, so it has this huge neck and a giant, giant, like, needle-like skull. Its wingspan is up to 30 feet or more, so about the size of an F-16 fighter jet. Um, <laughs> it does not have leathery skin, as you might imagine, but is actually covered in a fuzzy coat of what they call pycnofibers, which are like a precursor to feathers, but the analog um, might be like a small mammal's fur. And, and when this thing is on the ground, it actually stands up on its hind legs, and then it walks around using its folded-up wings like... Uh, crutches, kind of. It can, like, lean forward on them. And when it does this, it is so tall it would look a giraffe in the eye. Furry, giant-headed, flying reptile, stork bat hellish monster that walks around on its hands and feet just, like, plucking up small animals from the ground. I mean, the thing about uh, these specific pterosaurs, some pterosaurs have teeth. Uh, Quetzalcoatlus and some of the big ones do not. So they can't totally figure out diet, but they link it to some um, some types of stork-like birds that will basically eat anything it can, like, shove down its throat. Um, so they think it probably ate small dinosaurs. And when I say small, I mean, like, like large dog dinosaurs. Um, big fish, mammals, um, and maybe grade school humans <laughs> would have been an option. Uh, Habib told me that a full-grown person would have been pushing it based off of the measurement of its gape size. But I have watched some videos of storks like horking down fish that are too big for its body. And I'm, I'm not convinced. I think it could definitely eat you. <laughs> um, so you may now click on the link provided so that our listeners can hear your reactions. Oh, God. Yeah, so that head, this is like a caricature of a dinosaur. Like when when a character artist draws a person and the head is way out of proportion. It also just looks like somebody like listed off a number of animals and they wanted them to be combined. Right. Like bat, stork, dinosaur. 
So, but 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 looking at this picture, do do you have the same question that I did? Just in terms of like, well, how does it not tip over? Exactly. How on earth did this thing fly? In fact, how does this statue not tip over? <laughs> so the skull is so big, it just looks like it couldn't possibly get in the air. And this is point number two of why Quetzalcoatlus is so cool. And it's because how it flew, but more importantly, how it got off into the air has been a matter of like vigorous scientific debate. The, to the, the limiting factor is actually getting up. I did some calculations in 2010 demonstrating that for Quetzalcoatlus, um, if it launched bipedally like a bird, it would it would break its own thigh bones. Mm, that's not good. Yeah, exactly. So it could take off once. Uh, <laughs> sort, of the, sort of the joke. Uh, so apparently, like every flying animal ever, with just a couple of exceptions, has taken off in the same way by just jumping into the air and flapping its wings at the same time. Um, so uh, it was actually a flight engineer who was the first to propose a solution that Quetzalcoatlus and other pterosaurs might launch themselves into the air by sort of like propelling themselves forward on all four limbs. Now that we knew that that pterosaurs walked on their hands and feet, maybe they jumped off both their hands and their feet. That would allow them to use their wings as part of their jumping power. It's crazy. They, like, crouch down sort of like it's going to hike a football, and then it, it, like, pushes with its hind legs, vaults forward on its wing-like crutches, and then they sort of unfold like a catapult and spring it into the air. Habib actually has used NASA research in order to, like, help understand how these things flew. Like, he's used actual rocket science (laughs) to understand paleontology. Uh, uh, Point number five is a quick baby fact and a final mystery. Um, This is the charming Dave Unwin, pterosaur expert paleobiologist at the University of Leicester in the UK. Um, And and basically, they are reptiles. uh, So there's this particularly interesting fact that that, uh, they don't share with any other flying sort of bird-type thingamajig. Because, because birds all need some level of care after they're born. They're all kind of useless. But... When they hatched out, um, these uh, hatchling pterosaurs, flaplings we call them, actually had a full set of flying equipment. They had fully developed forelimbs and hindlimbs, and they got wing membranes. And aerodynamic studies show that actually they were flight capable. So within hours or days of hatching, pterosaurs were able to fly away. That's a pretty cool fact. So, like, instantaneously they were in the air. And actually, um, because of that, I guess they were awkward flyers, and so that's good because a lot of them crashed and died and then left fossils. <laughs> Thank goodness. Thank goodness. Right, so, uh, so, final mystery. Uh, do, you, do you want the totally made-up mystery or do you want the legitimate one? But... Uh, and I have to choose, I presume. I want the real mystery. Give me the real mystery. Okay, well, the, the, they, one leads to the other. The real mystery is that um, the modern ancestors of birds actually co-evolved with uh, the Ashdarkids. And so uh, after the extinction event at the end of the late Cretaceous, there's this big question, like, why did the birds survive, but these um, the Ashdarkids didn't? Uh, it's a mystery. Like, there's, yeah, there's okay. not a solution. <laughs> I, was like, I was like, are you waiting for me to answer this no. because... I'm not equipped. But this this leads to the the other mystery. There's cuz there's several websites that propose that there still are pterosaurs and they track all the pterosaur sightings across the globe. <laughs> He's resorting to conspiracy. Let's yeah. see. Oh, <laughs> oh, you all you all know, you all want to believe. You want to believe. Do I? <laughs> <laughs> all right, who's up next? Uh, yeah, yeah, hang on. We know what's up next. But we have to go to a break. <laughs> oh, right. Breaks. 
Gesprächsschmecks. Two down, two to go. More amazing animal facts in our coolest animal contest after the break. This is Outside In. I'm Sam Evans-Brown, and we are hearing four cases for the four coolest animal, according to our Outside In producers. We've already heard the case for a jellyfish whose name I've forgotten. The god jellyfish. Teratopsis dorney. <laughs> and uh, a pterodactyl or pterosaur. It's not a pterodactyl. <laughs> oh, this is bad. It's like a, out of the monster book of monsters. <laughs> <laughs> Jimmy, oh, Jimmy. What have you got for us? So I went with a love story instead of a science story hmm. uh, because that's how I roll. Well, we should, no- we should note that everyone kept their secret except for you consistently told me which animal you were going to be arguing for. I mean, <laughs> we understood when this competition came about, Jimmy was picking the spotted hyena. Yeah. I could tell you all the things I love about hyenas, which I will, but I also wanted to introduce Kay Holkamp. That's the hyena scientist. She has been working with spotted hyenas for over 30 years, uh, living amongst them, studying them, and uh, she's pretty much my hero. Would it be fair to call you the Jane Goodall of hyenas? I have been called that, yes. <laughs> <laughs> so that's Kay. Uh, I'm going to throw a little shade here. Uh, unlike the rest of our team, I am repping my favorite animal of all time. So let's just put that out there. I don't know how listeners will weigh that, hopefully heavily. You're saying that these other people are being strategic and trying to win the contest as opposed to actually representing what they believe? What they really love and what they truly appreciate. Well, so it's politics season, so... Fair, 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 fair. Uh, so, Sam, honest question. When you think of hyenas, what comes to your mind? Uh, so the Lion King. The Lion King. Oh, Bad bad i mean right there we've got an image problem right and i want to say this i want to put this to the group is that hyenas are actually victims of colonialism (laughs) (laughs) historically i think that both local people in africa and the european colonists who ran a lot of africa for a long time knew that this place was filled with dangerous large carnivores so everybody locks themselves into their houses in at night and then they go out in the morning and they come across a scene where there's a big glorious glamorous lion feeding on a carcass, and there are these bloody, messy hyenas sort of skulking around in the background. And um, the assumption is, because hyenas don't look like they're good hunters, that the lion, of course, must have made the kill. I even hear tour guides telling this to clients today out on the safari. But um, in fact, if you're the hyena watcher, you're there earlier when it's still dark, and you can actually see that the hyenas are often the ones killing pack more often than not. And the Lions are the ones who steal the food. Oh, what's oh. up, Simba? <laughs> How do you feel about that? Uh-huh. I will confess that I knew that fact, but I figured that I shouldn't roll it out first thing. <laughs> <laughs> so, so essentially, since people are lazy and hyenas don't make movies, yeah. they're stuck with the stereotype. Yeah. Uh, but I've got a new stereotype I want to introduce, and that's the fact that hyenas are actually a matriarchy. The females are bigger and stronger and socially dominant to the males and the males in spotted hyena society are very wimpy. Um, they spend most of their time <laughs> kowtowing and groveling in front of the females that they want to mate with, and um, the females definitely rule the show. So the highest-ranking individual in a, in a hyena clan, which is what we call their social groups, is called the alpha female, and she can literally waltz in and displace any hyena from a carcass, even if the, the displaced animal is the one who killed it. If there's ever an animal for the Me Too movement. <laughs> Justine's got thoughts. Justine's yeah. got thoughts. <laughs> I think we should pick the animal. So, so, so there's, there's this other thing that comes in with the, them being a matriarchy, and it's also like how they're engineered, like females are engineered, and, and just if you look underneath a hyena uh, at their genitalia, 
it was very difficult for people, zoologists, people to tell them apart because it looked like they had exactly the same parts. Hmm. Um, and it was called, it's been called a pseudopenis and all these other things. But with them having the same parts, it's led to some incredible consequences. Thinking of just how the genitalia works, it seems like there can be nothing but consensual sex. That's exactly right. There's, there's no coercive sex in the world of spotted hyenas at all. It's impossible. If the female's not on board with the idea of mating with a particular guy, it's clearly not going to happen. Can you explain? Um, are you going to? Or are you going to just gloss right over I that? Mean, I mean, I could. I could. So essentially, like, how it works, having that... that um, the, Jimmy's doing a lot of talking with his hands right now. Yeah, yeah. The way that the... <laughs> the way to mount... So, so adults over the age of eighteen can Google this. Uh, parents, <laughs> it's not hard to find. <laughs> parents, you know, help your kids if you if they were looking for it. Okay, so we've we've started to flip this high in the script, right? Okay. Uh, but but we're all animals here. Let's be honest, and we got to eat, and so do hyenas. Uh, there's some things you should know about hyenas and how they hunt. One, they do not rely on stealth like big cats. Hmm. Okay, so they are cursor animals, so they run and chase down their prey like wolves. Two, they can run up to 35 miles per hour and run for miles. You're not getting away. <laughs> and finally, when they catch their prey, they're very gangster about it. And they don't kill with a particular death grip uh, around the muzzle or the neck. In fact, they just kill by um, grabbing the animal and starting to eat it, just like wolves and cave hunting dogs do. But they are extremely efficient hunters, and that's what the funny sloping body stance is all about. It allows them to just carry on and sort of rocking horse gallop for a long time. There are some other things I just kind of want to like throw out to you all and right, to like right. the audience of I'm like here. how amazing they are. I'm here for this. Um, so someone had mentioned something earlier when we were off mic about their laughter, and that cackling is actually a very complex uh, system of language that they have, and they're always communicating. Um, their intellect is on par with primates. So even though you look at these mangy, miserable animals, they're actually geniuses. Uh, and speaking of these geniuses, uh, they take care of their young and old alike. They live in these multi-generational uh, kind of clans, clans with a C. <laughs> should just be very clear with that one. Uh, <laughs> so how are you feeling? Is your mind blown yet? You present a strong case. Before we go, though, I had one more question I put to Kay. I've been trying to put into words what I love so much about hyenas. And I'm uh-huh. just curious, as the hyena scientist, like, why do you love them? I love them because they're so bizarrely interesting. They're cute when they're little, and um, I think they're very handsome as grown-ups, personally. Maybe that's because I've spent a lot of time watching them. But they seem to break a lot of the basic rules of mammalian biology. And, they, you know, they're large carnivores, but they live in this monkey-like society. They can eat things like anthrax and not die. What's that? How do they do that? We have no idea. You know, they've got this very bizarre genitalia. Nobody still understands to this day why, why that's the case. So they're just so many, they present so many puzzles, and, and I like puzzles. So the hyena turns out to be a really good animal if you like puzzles. So if you like puzzles, if you support women and consensual sex, if you like badass hunters, and if you can get behind underdogs and destroying stereotypes, the hyena is actually your favorite animal too. I will just point out I'm furiously doing a Google image search of baby hyenas right now. Yep. It's another adorable. Another recommendation. Adorable. Jimmy, you should have been a lawyer. This tactic using puppies. <laughs> <laughs> Our final animal case comes from Justine Paradise. 
Sure does. <laughs> um, so I have chosen the termite. Uh, now the termite is a, a social insect. Um, it eats wood. It's been studied, you know, in in robotics. It's been studied in uh, biofuel research and architecture. And you might you might be familiar with them from the exterminator, you know, the, the eating your house and crops and things. Um, <laughs> but there is this place um, in Namibia in Africa where there are bare patches of earth that kind of polka dot the landscape. Um, They appear and disappear mysteriously over the course of decades. People call them fairy circles. I would just like to put out there that basically termites are are fairies. Termites are fairies. (laughs) Oh, oh, I don't know. No, termites are so much more than fairies. I mean, fairies are just an idea. A termite is so much more. (laughs) This is uh, Lisa Marganelli, and she's a journalist and author of the book Underbug, An Obsessive Tale of Termites and Technology. Um, Once you actually find some termites, you realize that they're a superorganism. You know, they are, which is a very loose, non-scientific way of referring to how they are social insects and how one single termite doesn't really mean anything, but a community of termites with a queen and with workers and with soldiers is capable of defending itself, of feeding itself, of reproducing and all that. So like ants and bees, uh, they live in colonies and individuals have different roles. And uh, one cool thing is uh, the queen is among the longest lived of all insects. She can live 20 years or more and which one article said could mean, you know, with at an egg every three seconds could mean up to a quarter billion eggs in her lifetime. Very cool. Unusually long life. Um, but termites vary a lot. There's like 3,000 different species. Um, some live totally underground and others in, in mud tunnels, lacing up trees and others like in your house and stuff. But the ones I want to talk about first are these iconic termite mounds that are found in, in Namibia and West Africa. Um, they can be up to like 17 feet tall and they all sort of gently arc towards the north, towards the sun, because they're below the equator. They kind of look like these beautiful hulking figures in the savanna. Um, and when wind hits the mound... They're just beautifully designed to diffuse the air throughout the mound and underground, so they circulate temperature and water vapor and nutrients. So they're they're studied for for how how they can function, kind of almost as a lung, which some scientists say is kind of reductive, but we're just gonna ignore that. Um, <laughs> yeah, and then if if an anteater or something breaks into the mound, the termites are drawn to the fresh air coming in, so they they almost act as like a, an immune response, coming and patching it, uh, patching with mud. And some species also raise fungus inside their mounds um, that they feed dry grass. It helps them digest. So the fungus and the gut microbes serve as the stomach. The queen is the reproductive organ. They're the soldiers. They, all together, they form this superorganism. But um, my my big final argument is, besides like their mastery of thermodynamics, uh, if you need anything else, um, is how they influence the landscape. Okay, so let me, I'll just give you a little story about that. So um, back around 2008... So, so it was 2008, uh, and the ecologist Robert Pringle was in a dry part of Kenya, and he was studying geckos. And what he found was that there were super high levels of geckos at the same place that there were termite mounds. And the termite mounds in this part of, of Kenya are, they're more like a little chicken pox. So this is back to the, the fairy circle idea, that like the dry patches of earth kind of polka-dotting the landscape. And this is a place where termites live mostly underground. But not only were there geckos in these places, the high concentrations of geckos, there were also more spiders. It was greener near the termites. There was extra nitrogen in the leaves and the tree leaves nearby, which was attractive to animals like giraffes and elephants. So there was they were creating kind of this hot spot. Somehow the termite mounds were related to making everything greener and more fertile 
in these sort of hot spots across the landscape, these polka dots across the landscape. So all these other scientists were coming to study, study this too, including this, uh, this woman, Karina Tarnita, and she's a mathematical biologist. They were out walking one day, and she looked out at a field and she said, I feel like there's not just the polka dot pattern of the mounds here, there's something else going on. And they pulled over a, a truck or something, and she stood on the back of it, and looked, and she said, well, I think I see leopard spots. So this is significant. Are you familiar with a Turing pattern? This is Alan Turing? Yeah, Alan Turing. Um, so he proposed this theory of growth that happens in biological and ecological systems when um, it's sort of hard to explain because it's like a, a mathy idea, but it's it's a pattern of growth. You see it in coral reefs. You see it in our nerve cells and zebra coats and leopards, um, peat bogs, the way peat bogs form. It's basically when there's, when there's competition and, and abundance of resources, and, and that interplay basically forms patterns that look like leopard spots. Um, and she did some modeling and found that she was right. She was looking at the pattern of plant growth and the bare patches of earth and found out it, it was a Turing pattern. And you can actually see that from a plane when you're flying over parts of Africa or parts of Australia where there are, are termite mountains. And those patterns, they, they really changed what people thought was happening in grasslands that are going through periods of drought. So there had been a belief that when the grass in a, in a grassland that's going through drought gets to a certain level of patchiness, that it means that it's about to sort of fall off a cliff into basic desertification. It'll be very, very hard to bring it back. This is happening across the world. Something we're witnessing is this phenomena of grasslands uh, swapping over to desert, and it's this sort of big problem. But... But it turned out that with the termite mounds there and their behavior of the land, you could get to that patchy phase and you could still come back to fertility relatively easily. So instead of falling off a cliff, it was like a staircase. So what it means is that termite mounds are not only enhancing the fertility of a huge section of, of land on the earth, um, they're also making it more resilient to drought. Really cool. And fairy circles will basically save us all. <laughs> <laughs> they're like the they're like the beaver of the desert. Yeah. Of the savannah. Another thing that um that Lisa said is that, that termites are the architects of negative space. That they're that the stark, beautiful, rare landscape of deserts is a result of them like eating all of the wood. And so all of your desert Instagram vibes. You have termites to thank. <laughs> <laughs> um, so that's my case. Termites are gonna are gonna save us from desertification and, and climate change. And they're fairies. Scientists hate me. <laughs> <laughs> okay. It seems that we should have closing statements. Thirty seconds. Ooh. We're gonna and we're gonna we're gonna shake it up. So we're gonna start with Jimmy. Um, okay, so we talked about hyenas and how amazing they are. And at this point, I was going to just like downplay all the other animals. Like Taylor, your animal's dead. <laughs> Hannah, my uh, Hannah, your animal is actually quite terrifying. Thinking about pinky nail jellyfish everywhere. Justine, my animal eats yours. Uh, but I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to throw any shade. Uh, instead, what I'm going to do is say there is a lot of room to grow the hyena brand, and they need a lot of help out there in the world. So get on Twitter. Uh, let's spread this around the world. And also, uh, one caveat. Um, if the hyena does oh, win. Oh, he's done. He's done. Oh, I'm done. Oh, you're out of time. Oh, oh that was my big one. I'll get a hyena tattoo if the hyena wins. <laughs> all right. Uh, Taylor Quibby. Okay, so one thing I'll just say about immortality is that we all know from vampire novels that it's overrated and that it's really a curse. So the immortal jellyfish, really, they're just cloning themselves and immortality is not all that great. Um, 
termites, they're a pest. Rude. Oh, that's a, <laughs> they're, they're, a pest. they're a pest if you have a, a house-centric view of the world. And hyenas admittedly are cool, but the Quetzalcoatlus would eat them if it were alive today. And it might still be, according to conspiracy theorists. So uh, all I can say is, boom. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Justine Paradise. All right. So termites are going to save us in... in Every way, which is that they're going to save us from drought and, and climate change. We're going to find, use their gut microbes to make biofuels. We're going to use them as robots to clean all our wounds. And um, <laughs> and also we eat them. They're a source of protein. So I really feel that um, this idea of them as a pest is um, really just completely misguided. And your, your animal is basically just a middle school monster. So whatever, Taylor. <laughs> <laughs> Hannah McCarthy. Okay, I will only say that of all the species, mine has succeeded best in terms of species proliferation, and it's done so silently, invisibly, and it has also inspired a Japanese scientist to write karaoke songs, as well as dress up as the Turritopsis Dorney. Please click on the Shinkubota tab there, Sam. Oh, jeez. Oh, 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 yes. He sports oh, there a he jellyfish is. hat. <laughs> I, too, will sport a jellyfish hat. Oh, my God. In support... <laughs> Turptosis Dorney. It's like a shower cap with ribbons. <laughs> this, listeners, is where you come in. You have heard the cases for these animals. I've got my vote, but mine will be just one among Legion. You can email us your vote at outsidein at nhpr.org or vote on the online poll on our Outside In Facebook group. Have you joined the group, by the way? Or on Twitter. All the details are on our website, outsideinradio.org. What is your vote? I can't tell you. It's a secret ballot. Secret ballot. Secret ballot, secret ballot ruined the entire voting system in this country, but that's something for another day, Sam. <laughs> Outside In was produced this week by me, Sam Evans-Brown, Taylor Quimby, Hannah McCarthy, Justine Paradise, and Jimmy Gutierrez. Erica Janik is our executive producer. Maureen McMurray is the director of statistically insignificant internet polls about animals. Special thanks this week to Cy Montgomery, who helped Jimmy fall in love with hyenas. Our theme music is by Breakmaster Cylinder. Outside In is a production of New Hampshire Public Radio. 